everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, friends. Today's teaching is anchored in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, and it goes like this. This is Jesus speaking as he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for the Gentiles who strive for all these things? And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. My name's Zach, I'm one of the pastors here, and for me, coming right out of college, uh, I jumped on uh, to a fire academy and got on with the Arvada Fire Department, and it was a total blast. But one thing that's unique, and there's so many different trades that are this way, uh, it began with, here's the school part of it, here's the textbook, here's how to put out fires, here's how to put an IV in somebody's arm, here's the books about it. And over time, they've realized, gosh, if we're only giving people the book knowledge and then sending them out into the world, they don't do so great. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but whether it's the hospital in, in an ambulance, have you ever heard somebody utter the words of absolute terror? Hey, this is my first time doing this. As they've got a needle coming at your body, like, has that ever happened to you? If you go to EMT school, that happens to you all the time because you're practicing on each other. Like, I'm not, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's like six weeks of EMT school. It's... It's excruciating. It's amazing. And we're all doing it with each other. With, with the fire academy, we would drill on opening up fire hydrants. I mean, there, there were timed things of how fast can you run across the yard with a big wrench, get that fire hydrant open, and throwing water everywhere. And they would blindfold us. We'd do these knots, and you'd have to know all these different knots blindfolded. They would call it, uh, tie a bowline, and it would just, how fast can you tie a bowline without even looking at it? And some of my favorites, the most intense, you would be reading in a textbook. What happens when your body gets stuck? If you're in a house fire and the rafters fall down on you and you can now no longer move, what happens? In a textbook, that is so easy. I've never had a panic attack in my life, but I remember going through blindfolded with all my bunker gear on and an air tank on. And this particular day, we didn't know this, but it was designed to trap your body in a corner and let your oxygen tank run out and you just had to deal with the fact that there's nothing I can do about this moment. You cannot learn that in a textbook. 
At some point in life, there are things where you, you just can't read about it if you're actually going to know how to do the thing. Can you imagine a firehouse filled with people who have only studied it in books? Can you imagine going to a hospital where everybody is super well-read, but they've never done it before? Life is intended to be experienced, not just learned. And this experience thing, the way that you study for a math test is just different than how you get ready for a track meet. The experience of a thing, there is a knowing that comes with that. So many evangelical circles were encouraged to engage the head, but oftentimes the space for the heart can lag behind. We're great at studying God, but if you've ever wished that you could, have you ever wished that you could just experience him instead of learning more things about him. Some of us grew up in traditions where we had something like a catechism or a confirmation, something where you were given, like, here's the book, uh, read all these things, be able to repeat all these things back, and once you're done, you get a stamp of approval. We'll sear you with our brand, <laughs> and you're done, you're finished, you know all the right answers. But as you've gotten older, even if that's not your experience, as you've leaned into spirituality, as you get older, there's just something in you where you go, is this it? Is this all there is? Is it just the ability to assent to a core set of beliefs? Is this what it means to follow God? There's a famous story from some desert fathers that will set up our time today, and it's weird, just so you know. We'll get done, and you'll be like, what? It goes like this. Abbot Lot went to see Abbot Joseph, and he said, Father, according as I am able, I keep my little rule and my little fast, my prayer, my meditation, and contemplative silence is according as I am able. I strive to cleanse my heart of bad thoughts. Now what more should I do? And the elder rose up to reply, and he stretched out his hands to heaven, and his fingers became like lamps of fire. And he said, why not become all flame? And if you hear that story and you're like, what the heck? Yeah, me too. The first time I read that, I was like, what is going on in this story? This is what we're talking about today. At some point in the spiritual journey, having more information, having answers to questions or not answers to questions, begins to create one more void in your spiritual journey where you just start realizing, I, I love the textbook. I love the words, but I want to experience this life. When does that come this is part of the question that we've been asking as we've been going through this series further up and further in. And the whole idea of this is, is there a growth cycle in the spiritual life? Is, is Christianity, is any faith system simply a matter of a once I believe this, but then I cross this line and now I believe this, and this is just where I am for the rest of my life until I die? Or can it be something more to the effect of once I didn't believe this thing, but then one day I took a step on a journey and then I took another step, and the view from this step looked different than that one. And the more that I've spent every year of my life going on this journey towards something, I'm learning more. I'm experiencing things different. The questions that I have, the answers I have for those questions, the people I'm around, all of these things change. And there's been folks over the years who have studied this and have said, actually, there's some pretty predictable things that we see happening in the lives of people. And if we can see these things coming, it helps us know exactly where we are. 
And the hope of this series is not so much that we go, hey, what stage are you in and what's the next one and how quickly can you get into this next stage? The hope of this is to say, hey, what stage are you in right now? And how can you revel in it? How can it be a season in your spiritual life where you are in no hurry to mature, but you trust that the work that God is doing in you, whether you're somebody who's been following Jesus for decades or somebody who has just started asking questions, I'm just thinking about the claims of Jesus, that we trust the things that God is doing in us. So we started a few weeks ago with this idea um, from Jen, this, this big overarching, here's the whole enchilada, but really we started to get in at stage two. And stage two is this idea that you just start growing and learning. Oftentimes there's mentors that are involved. You're just learning the basics of the thing. This is like a super textbook experience for sure. I'm just learning about this. Then you might bump into stage three, and stage three is really where you begin serving. You're, get, you're rolling up your sleeves, and you're getting involved in the work. I love that the way that God calls his people, particularly this God of the Bible, is not one of saying, here's all the things I want you to believe. It just seems like this God of Scripture, gosh, he just brings us to life by saying the world is broken, and I have such a heart for it. Yes, I want you to believe right things, but go and do right things. Bring justice to people who do not experience justice. Care for the orphans and the widows. Love radically and at your own expense. Let me show you how. I just, I just love that it's not an ascent to a set of beliefs. It's deeply practical and engaged in this world. And the more you lean into stage three, the more things you begin learning, not, not just in like, here's the things that we believe, but you start engaging the world. You start serving in these places that are hard and dark. And the longer you're there, it's been my experience, you just start asking questions that don't have simple answers anymore. We talked about this idea in stage four last week. It's almost like watching a little kid lose a tooth. There's just something bigger and better that's coming up. And these little things that we've known before we have to lose them in order for the more full, robust, mature thing to take its place. And so the stage four is a lot of asking questions. It's a lot of leaning into things that before were very concrete, but now they're becoming much more mysterious. And in some of those questions, you will find new answers. That new tooth comes fully in. And in other ways, people who are going through stage four on their way to stage five look like hillbillies because they've got some teeth that are in and some teeth that ain't never coming in, and they're okay with just grinning at you. They don't care. Stage five is really beginning to move beyond simply asking these questions. It doesn't mean that we're done asking questions, but it just means that now there's something more. Now, before we get too far in, it's been so fun getting feedback from so many of you saying this, this has been so helpful for me. So again, we've done this the past couple of weeks, but find your age range here at the bottom. Find your column. You can just begin to see what's, what's the likelihood of the stages that exist for you. And today, because we're talking about stage five, I just want you to see that to have this start, Nancy, give me that next slide. Getting in fully to stage five before your 30s, probably not happening. And so this is something that really, for those getting 30 and up, is really interesting. I, I've cracked up at this chart. There's, there's a couple of places where this happens, but what happens between your 30s and your 50s where we lose 4% of people that were in stage five? They like die off? Is there something really dangerous that happens in stage five? But it's, it's just so relatively small. 
And to tee up next week, oh, I'm so excited for next week. I just want you to see, too, the thought that you will move past stage five is so small. For many of us in this room, stage five is something that if you are not there, what we're going to be talking about today is something that Lewis would probably say, it's, the, it's like an undiscovered country. <laughs> it's out there. It's waiting for you. It's beckoning you towards it but not from a place of saying, hurry up, get here as fast as you can, blow past stage two, three, four, and get here now. Stage five demands that you have gone through the beauty and the struggle and the triumph and the loss fully of all the stages that have come before. And now, with your hillbilly grin, you're leaning into something going, there's some things I have answers to. There's other things I think I'm okay never having answers to. And I've got my textbook. I've learned it really well. The textbook says, serve. I've done that really well. But now that I find myself here, and the questions I've been asking for a long time, I want to experience this God. I want to know Him. I want to do life alongside Him. Those begin the questions of stage five. A new thing begins to emerge in stage five. Two suggested books, if you're interested this week. One is called Sacred Fire by a guy named Ronald Rollheiser, a Catholic priest. If you want to get real crazy, he's amazing. Um, My favorite for this week is a book called Transformed into Fire. I don't know what the fire theme's about today, but Transformed into Fire by a, a creative writing professor from Northwestern. Her name is Judith Hogan. Amazing. But Rollheiser, in his book, says this, and I think this is a great introduction to what's happening between stage four and five, and he says this, what lies beyond the essentials, the basics? Where do we go once some of the basic questions in our lives have been answered or at least brought to enough peace that our focus can shift away from ourselves to others? Where do we go once these basic questions in our lives are no longer the restless questions of youthful insecurity and loneliness? Who am I? Who loves me? How will my life turn out? Where do we go once the basic questions in life become, how can I give my life away more purely and more meaningfully? How do I live beyond my own heartaches, headaches, and obsessions so as to make other people's lives more meaningful? As we begin looking at stage five, it's not merely the ability to be okay with mystery. That's part of it. It also seems like there's an invitation in stage five to something new. For those that are leaning into this, you might be saying things like, it's like I have these questions and I ask them to a God I'm becoming more and more familiar with. He may not answer them, he might, but what it does seem like he's doing consistently, repeatedly, is that he's approaching me gently waiting to engage something above the questions. Stage five begins to bubble up when we begin to think, I've been doing all this good stuff. I have been loving God with my whole self, but does he love me? What is that love actually like? I long to experience it more than any other desire. Is that possible? Today's reading uh, is from the Sermon on the Mount, 
And as a quick uh, just catch up to this story, Jesus is sitting on a hillside and there are hundreds of people gathered around this hill. And he calls his 12 students to him. And it's, it seems a little nebulous from the text. Is he just giving this teaching just to these 12 folks or is it just kind of like anybody in earshot? Like you're going to want to write this down. But it's this collection that Matthew, the writer of this book, he just takes like, here's really Jesus's best stuff. Here's this sermon that he gave. And it's just these vignettes where Jesus is just rifling off just goldens, like the whole time. It's just amazing. This section about worry that he hits comes in a string of these really quick, pithy teachings. And this is the longest. It's almost like with all these things he's saying, he's like, if you want to know, like, what's the one idea that sums all these things up? Let me tell you about this. Now, there's some things, too, before we read this one more time that I want you to keep in mind. Welcome to first century Palestine. Welcome to a place where the average family has 30 possessions that they keep in their house. You might have one or two changes of clothing, but the average person, probably not much more than that. And when you compare that kind of a lifestyle to the lifestyle that we have today, it's amazingly different. My wardrobe, as a man, is enormous. The amount of food in my fridge, in my pantry, is shocking. What I have accessible at my fingertips with things I want to wear or things I want to eat, man, it's just like, keep that in mind as you consider the original audience that's hearing this teaching when Jesus says this. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? I was talking about this with Drew this week, and she got to go to Israel uh, a little while back, and she said, yeah, we were on the side of the lake of the Sea of Galilee, and we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, and this flock of these green parrots, like long tail feathers, just come soaring around us looking up what kinds of birds live in this region. I mean, it's, it's like tropical sea type stuff, just absolute beauty. When I picture like, what are the birds that Jesus is talking about? I'm like, like little sparrows, like little tiny things. Those are for sure there. But I just imagine Jesus sitting on the Lake of Galilee and this flock of green parrots flying around and going, hey, watch this real quick. See those guys? See how they like, they're just not worried about their barn. <laughs> their pantry and their fridge, that they just don't have to worry about it. And, and being one of his students and just watching them, like they're the teacher in this moment. Beautiful. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? Average lifespan at this day and age is about 35 years old. Where were you at 35? Lots of us maybe had younger kids. We had a career that was just starting to take off and boom. Consider the fact that maybe your life is coming to a close. Man, you can't add more time to it by worrying. What about just leaning in? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. What grows on the side of the Sea of Galilee? Blue lilacs grow there. 
uh, blue and, and red anemones. Is that what they're called? Anemes? Anemones? I'm not, I'm not a flower guy. Uh, it's beautiful to be sitting as you're watching these flocks of parrots fly around and then have Jesus say, okay, now look down here. See that? Like they, they just don't worry about how they're clothed. I mean, it's such an intensely practical teaching. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need them. These are life's questions. You may this week have asked at least one of these. Your kids for sure have, those of you. <laughs> what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Welcome to the human experience. These are normal questions to be asking. But in a moment, Jesus is going to take us on a pretty wild ride. He said, those are great stage one questions. Those are things that you should be asking. I'm just helping you relocate those questions in the right space. It's not about what your closet or your fridge can provide for you. Your worry actually won't add more time. Where do you place these things? The people that don't know God, for it is the Gentiles who strive for these things. The people who don't know God don't have another answer for that. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? If there is not a God, how could there be another answer to this? Jesus continues, but strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Almost any Bible translation that you read this teaching in will be subtitled, Do Not Worry which is like, okay, <laughs> but I think I would say that's like B minus work because that's actually not the point of this teaching. It's so clear from what Jesus is saying here that the subtitle of this teaching should be seek first the kingdom of heaven. Strive for it is the words of this particular translation. Do you put your worry towards things in this world? I think for many of us, the things that cause us worry are a need for approval or a need for control or a need for security. Some of the mystics would say these are attachments that we all have. We all have attachments to different things. So often they're rooted in those things, approval, control, or security. What do you depend on? What are the things that take your worry in your life? Those may be attachments that as we lean into stage five, God is simply smiling at saying, that's okay. That is a human experience. Now, I want you to relocate it in something higher. To live out this teaching would mean that you begin to leave behind the preoccupation with your worldly success. It discourages the wealthy and the comfortable from concentrating on their own success, but it also discourages the poor and the uncomfortable from focusing on their own misery. It seems to be an invitation to trust, to experience love and care, to strive for the kingdom is not one of those things that you read in a book and say, I got it. This is an invitation to live it out. 
And this idea of strive for the kingdom, seek first the kingdom, Jesus has just told his disciples, here's how you pray. Father, let your kingdom come and be here as it is in heaven. There's this awareness he's trying to grow in his students and those that love him. The kingdom is here, like right now. It is, it, it is within your reach. It is experienceable today. He's not saying, I want you to go on some journey to find something that's super far away. These disciples are in the process of entering into it, becoming aware of how present it actually was to them. And striving for the kingdom is not an invitation to go on a quest, but rather to strive for the kingdom means that you are holding still as you observe a reality that is more real and more present to you than the breath in your lungs. And to live in that kingdom fundamentally begins with a relationship to the one who is on its throne. What's your relationship like to him? What does he say about you? Before either of you do anything, what is there? Strive for the kingdom. Strive to live in the kingdom. Yes, there are things to be believed about the kingdom. And yes, there are places to serve and do in the kingdom. But if we are to strive for the kingdom, fundamentally it begins with the realization there is one on the throne and here is my position to him. And for those who maybe have grown up in a background where your position is fallen and far away and servant I just so distinctly know the heart of Christ as he says these things. I want you to know that your position in the kingdom is beloved and royalty and adopted and wanted. That's your position in this kingdom. These are all great things that we can believe and that we can read, but the invitation in this story is so simple and human. You're going to worry about your food. You're going to worry about your clothes. And you're going to worry about your death. I want you to set aside all those things and trust the one who gave them to you in the first place. We're going to experience life together. Jesus' invitation here is to help us see the main thing as the main thing. Stage five is the beginning of the work beyond the textbook. It's the experience, not simply of just serving, not simply of just learning to study scripture, but learning to receive the love of God. Do you know this God? Do you seek him? Do you strive for him? And fundamentally, I think the teaching of Jesus here is, do you trust him? Trust is something that's built in relationship and on experience. Blind trust actually isn't real. It's hopeful, but trust must be tested. And it comes with time. It comes with interaction. You can't build it in a textbook. You can know what it says. You can know who it's talking about. You can even memorize stories of how others have learned to trust this God. But human experience... Your experience, your relationship to him demands interaction to build that trust. Writer A.W. Tozer put it this way. See if this resonates with you. Every time I read this, it just sticks me in the heart. Is it not true that for most of us who call ourselves Christians, there's no real experience? 
We've substituted theological ideas for an arresting encounter. We're full of religious notions, but our great weakness is that for our hearts there is no one there. Whatever else it embraces, true Christian experience must always include a genuine encounter with God. Without this, religion is a shadow, a reflection of reality, a cheap copy of an original once enjoyed by someone else of whom we have heard. To be clear, I'm not saying that you don't really get to experience God until you're in the stage five. I think encounters with Him, trust of Him, intimacy with Him, these are all things that are growing in you as you journey along the way. However, there are some things that I would say this is unique to stage five. Here's a few. Stage fives have grown in, in a way, in a maturity, where they're just willing to give up a lot to see justice done in the world, financially, in other forms of generosity, their time, their experience of trust in God is not built on some wimpy, look at all the stuff that God has given me, but rather it's cemented in the forge of engaging in justice in the world and fighting for the oppressed and mentoring the fatherless and the motherless and giving of their physical and financial selves to offer hospitality to the cold world around. And after years of doing that, that is not just something they do because that's what the book says to do, and it's now not even something they do because they, they bond with their fellow human being this is now something in stage five you do as a companion to a God that you're simply saying, I see you in the world around and I just want to be where you are. Stage fives, they begin to open up to seeking God wherever he may be found. Fives hold this tension well that their church tradition or even their particular religion may not hold all the stock on truth that we are eager to seek out. Uh, and they, they begin seeking it out in whatever form it can come in. I remember being handed by a really trusted mentor a devotional a few years back, and I opened it up, and the first thing in it is a poem by a Sikh. And right away I'm like, what the heck? Like, how can this be helpful at all? Sikhs don't follow Jesus. And as I read it and continued to lean in, I realized the invitation there was to see something true and beautiful that someone else had seen regardless of where they were coming from. I mentioned this last week, but one of my favorite quotes is from a guy named St. Augustine. He just said, all truth is God's truth. Do not be afraid of where you mine the truth from. It is good in stage five to look for it everywhere. It is a warning for those in stage two or three to be careful. Stage five, you can look for it in a lot of places. Fives also seem to become more drawn to symbol and metaphor than logic. For them, the experience of God becomes primary, not just knowing about him. To receive communion and talk about communion next to a five, totally different experience than sitting next to a two or a three. The beauty of what the metaphor of it means. What is the point of communion? We'll have like 30 different answers to it, talking with a five. And they will probably use poetry, and they will probably use other metaphors to describe what's going on because things are not quite so simple. There's an abstractness and a beauty that comes with that abstractness. But most of all, what we've been circling around this whole time is that the fives that I know seem to have not only discovered but are learning to set up the home of their lives in a simple idea. 
And goodness gracious, Judith Hogan, she says it like this. I've sat through sermons and conferences and Sunday school classes exhorting me to put love into action, reminding me that love is the one ultimate mark of the believer, urging me into service to my neighbor. Almost everyone, it seems, starts the movement of love at square B, giving love, having rarely heard anyone start... excuse me, having rarely heard anyone begin at square A, receiving love, which is ground zero, the necessary foundation from which all else follows. Any exhortation to love God and others that is divorced from a call to first receive the love of God is not just incomplete. It has little objective reality. Still, this type of discipleship is almost universally advocated. We are rarely, if ever, taught how to receive the love that calls out the true self. Herein lies the problem for many of us who would follow Christ. We have no idea how to experience the love of God, how to take it in, how to rest in the compassion that called us into being. She's a creative writing prof. That's amazing. I think Tozer and I think Judith... Halgan are on to something big. I think they're on to what Jesus was talking about when he said, seek first the kingdom. We have to keep in mind that Jesus was speaking to a crowd a lot like the one that's here today. While some are seeking and questioning, there are many who are eager to follow this Jesus. And it's to both groups that he addresses this great truth. Hey, if you're spiritual, if you want to do right and the best things, but you're going wor- to worry about lots of things that are actually pretty natural to worry about. They'll take your time, and they'll take their energy, and they'll take your concern. You're at risk of showing up at church and showing up to your Heavenly Father for the rest of your life and not actually experiencing Him. It'll be frustrating. It'll create a lot of anxiety. It'll begin to feel hollow. So I'm encouraging you as you draw near experience him not just things about him learn to notice each experience where you learn to trust him a bit more and hold those experiences captive let them foster in you a conversation with him that is personal that that conversation would take your focus and your desire and your strivings and your attention focus on the one who loves you who calls you beloved He gave you life, the life that you're so tempted to worry about. Trust that if he was so generous to give you that, that he'll give you what you need to experience it. He'll sustain it not only through your dinner plate and your closet, but he'll sustain your life through your soul and your joy and your hope and your desires. If you're like, okay, man, you're losing me a little bit. What does this look like? Here's a really brilliant story, I think, that Judith Haugen talks about in her book. She says this. By her own account, Julia was raised as a solid, typical evangelical. Her family, involved in an active church, dedicated themselves to duty and to disciplines. She says, my early adulthood was filled with scripture memory and Bible study, but held little devotion in the full sense of connection and adoration. I had an internal checklist for my devotions and I made up. It was a bondage to the self, since doing for God 
was an expectation. She signed on for a variety of ministries. Once, while in lay leader training with a major parachurch organization, she was invited to write out her testimony from God's perspective, which was a novel idea for her. And something began to shift. I heard God's heart towards me, loving me, longing for me, a love not just for all people, but for me, for Julia. And intimacy slowly opened, and she began her journey into the true self. While certainly not immune to the struggle, Julia radiates joy and peace. She's still a tireless minister. Her compassionate gift of prayer has mediated the grace of God to hundreds of people. In pondering her journey from false self into true, she remarks, my quiet time used to be lonely. It was just me doing stuff. It was a strange sense of walking alongside myself, noticing how good I was doing, and wasn't I special for doing that? She laughs now at such thoughts. Her voice softens. Now it's just being with him. In my quiet time lately, I've been telling God why I love him, thanking him for continuing to speak to me, for breathing into me, for causing me to become. I want to love him back intentionally, to make my devotional time a time of intimacy. So recently, I heard his voice say, I'm not going to be unequally yoked. You will be a fit partner for me. And that's been undoing me. To be made glorious, to be made a perfect Eve for the second Adam, I'm a bride without spot or blemish. I'm blown away by that. He is the true source of beauty and of being. Our beloved union with Christ is our shining and awesome true self. And to live our days steeped in that glorious self is our privilege and our destiny as objects of God's affection. This sort of talk is not new. Many Christian circles are saturated with it, yet the number of us who actually function as the beloved for any significant portion of our days is minuscule at best. But the life of the true self is not hidden or difficult. The core of this self's existence can be easily summed up. The life of the true self is bound up in receiving and giving the love of God. If you're not at stage five, and particularly if you're not even close, I just want to encourage you, experiencing God's love is not something you have to wait for. The unique thing about those who make it through stage four is that their experience does not hinge on learning more about him or even having answers to their questions, but rather their experience is all about pursuing him. They learn to trust him beyond the things they are attached to. They've come to a place in their journey where the highest experience of joy is not merely loving God, but actually learning to trust and experience his love for them. It moves beyond the textbook. It becomes the experience of it. As I end for today, I wanted to just share a prayer that um, Alcoholics Anonymous has actually really called dibs on over the years, although it really wasn't written initially for alcoholics and addicts. Reinhold Niebuhr is a theologian who wrote something called the Prayer for Serenity, simply out of his own desire to engage the things he's attached to here on earth as honestly and appropriately as possible while also setting his sights as decisively on God and the kingdom as he could. You could say that this prayer is a fantastic commentary on Matthew 6. This is how Niebuhr would have interpreted it. Let's pray this together. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. God bless you. For those that are able, let's stand and sing.